This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 92, so close to the century, of the Sustainable-ish podcast. It is marvellous to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Now, it's starting to feel a little bit spring-like, isn't it? We're into March. I've seen daffodils out on our daily walk. I even went out without a coat on the other day. I know, wild times. And with the longer days and the warmer weather, many of us will be looking forward to spending more time outdoors and maybe indulging in a spot of gardening. Good for mind, body and soul, and good for the planet too, right? After all, what can be greener than getting your hands dirty and growing stuff? Well, turns out that sometimes gardening might not be all that green. I know, is nothing sacred anymore? Why does everything have to be so blooming complicated? What on earth can possibly be wrong with gardening? Well, when we start to think about it, quite a lot, as it turns out, from peat in compost through to synthetic fertilisers and single-use plastics, there's sadly some stuff that's actively working against the health of the planet and our garden. But to despair not, the good news is that gardening and our gardens have a huge potential to actually help the planet, wildlife, biodiversity and the climate crisis. We have a million acres of garden here in the UK, covering a greater area than our nature reserves. So there are huge possibilities there for the ecosystems and the biodiversity that our gardens can support. I hope you enjoy this chat with Sally Nex, the author of How to Garden the Low Carbon Way. Sally has got loads of top tips and ideas for how to garden more sustainably and how your garden can help to tackle the climate crisis. Enjoy. Um, I'm Sally Nex. I am a writer and a professional gardener. I spend half my week gardening and the other half writing about it, which is always very nice. I am also somebody who tries to garden as sustainably as possible. Um, so that's become a real kind of obsession of mine over the last few weeks, um, a few weeks, few years, actually. And, uh, and I've just written a book about it. That's me. Amazing. Gardening. I was just saying to you before we hit record, like I am very much not a gardener. I feel like I have the opposite of green fingers. But gardening feels like an, in, an inherently sustainable, green, eco thing to do, like, are you now telling me it's not? Like, what is it? 
I am saying that gardening is without a doubt probably one of the best things that you can do for the planet. It is a wonderful thing to do. You are basically growing natural things. You're getting yourself closer to nature. Um, you are increasing the amount of biomass on the planet. You're keeping an area of space open and free from development. There's all sorts of reasons why everybody should garden. You're planting plants and trees and things that absorb, actively absorb yeah. carbon from the atmosphere. But even though we as gardeners are doing such a lot for the environment, we can cancel all that out by gardening in a way that is less than thoughtful for the environment. So for example, by using pesticides and herbicides and uh, mowing the lawn with a petrol mower and all of those things which have massively high carbon footprints and actually do more harm than good. That's amazing. And I hadn't, th the fact that you've just said that that can cancel out kind of all those good things. We've been talking a lot in my membership in my Knackered Mums Club at the moment, we're, we're focusing on conscious consumption and this idea that it's not necessarily that you can't go and buy the things you want, but that you do it in a much more thoughtful, considered, slower way. And I guess that's almost similar, isn't it? We're talking about sort of conscious gardening almost. Exactly right. And that's kind of what I'm trying to get across with all of this is it's just being aware of the cost of everything that you do. Mm. So, you know, everything has a carbon cost. I mean, you know, to be honest, if you're breathing right now, <laughs> then, you know, you, you are, your very existence has a carbon cost. Yeah. So I'm not saying, you know, something crazy like, you know, we need to, uh, I don't know, um, I mean, even zero carbon is probably uh, quite a stretch. Mm. But as soon as you are aware of absolutely everything that you do and whether it's good, you know, contributing positively, i.e. Mm. acting to absorb carbon or whether it's doing the opposite and actually emitting more carbon than you're um, sequestering, then, you know, from that point of view, uh, if you're aware of it, I think that helps to modify behaviours. So, yeah. you know, quite a lot of what I've put in the book is fairly sort of extreme stuff that not everybody's going to be able to do. I mean, not everybody has room for a fedge at the back of the garden where you mm. can stack, you know, um, big woody prunings or anything like that. Right. And so that's fedge. Fine. Tell us, I, and I read about the fedge, and I don't yes. want people to think that you've just mispronounced either fence or hedge. This is a, well, tell us what a fedge is. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it is a um, cross between a fence and a hedge. Basically what it is, is a, uh, a parallel line really of fence posts. And it makes like a trough or a gully, I suppose. Mm. Into that, you stack all of your woody prunings, all of your garden waste, whatever you want to dispose of really. Mm. Um, and the idea is that it's quite a good idea to put longer branches at the outside just because it holds everything in. Yeah. Um, but you stack it up and stack it up. And you just keep adding into the top and it rots back down into the ground. And of course, all of the carbon that that, uh, that, that garden waste contained then ends up back in the ground where it belongs. Mm. Um, and also it creates the most amazing environment for wildlife too, because they all burrow in and there's lots of little nooks and crannies yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It's a fantastic way to, you create quite a nice boundary. So it's quite a good way of creating a hedge or a fence. Mm. Um, does the same thing in that it filters wind and keeps your garden nice and sheltered. Mm. But uh, you're also creating, you know, a really good sort of carbon sink, garden waste store, all of that kind of thing as well. When I read about it in your book, I was like, oh, because we've, um, we haven't got a massive garden at all. And, and our neighbour is quite precious about her garden. And I was like, oh, I really just want to like uproot our, you know, six foot fence panels and put all these fedges in all the way around but I'm not sure she'd be very up for it <laughs> well this is the thing this is the thing and I think you know so that's quite an extreme example it may well be that you don't like the aesthetic because it's a pretty kind of shaggy aesthetic that you end up with it's great mm. big sort of heap of wood and stuff 
so it's definitely one for the back of the garden i would say you yeah. want one directly outside your back your, your back door but uh even you know if you're living in a suburban environment then obviously it's not particularly appropriate or, or probably not anyway because yeah. your neighbor is probably not going to appreciate that yeah in which case dial it down a little bit and plant a hedge instead mm. if you can get away with a mixed native hedge hedge all the better because they're better for wildlife and they're also they tend to be a bit wider and wider mm -hmm. hedges uh, absorb more carbon even if you can't manage that put in any other kind of a hedge that's absolutely fine but you know that's something that you can do even in quite small gardens mm. instead of for example a fence or worse a wall because walls have quite high carbon footprints oh, wow. but um but if you do that then that's something that's in keeping with your environment now yeah perhaps it's not going to score as highly on the sort of carbon sequestration front but that's fine because you're doing what you can yes. and i think that is the most important thing if everybody does just a little something it adds up to really quite a lot yeah and that is totally the sort of ethos that you know here at sustainable ish it's about this idea of you know, doing it imperfectly, making a start, doing what you can that fits in with your circumstances and things. So that's amazing. So the book is called, and I don't know why I'm showing it to you because we're on Zoom and people on the podcast aren't going to be able to hear it and aren't going to be able to see it. Um, but it's how to garden the low carbon way, the steps you can take to help combat climate change. I, like I said, I'm not a gardener. I don't move in gardening circles. Is this a conversation that's happening in gardening around how to make it more sustainable or is it, is it are you just? coming quite left field from here? Well, to be honest, that's kind of slightly why I've got more obsessed about it practically with every month that passes, because there is such a hunger for knowledge out there. People wow. really, really care about this issue on social media. Everybody wants to know the answers. They want to sort of say, you know, how do I get rid of the plastic in my garden? Yeah. How, what, what's suitable for making a, a substitute for a plastic plant label? What, mm. what have you tried? And because I'm actually trying it myself in my garden, I mean, I haven't found all the answers. I can't even remotely uh, um, <laughs> say that. But but the fact is that I've been experimenting, doing lots of experiments for some years now, actually. Mm. And, and so I've got a few answers and things that work a bit better and things that don't work so well, that kind of stuff. Yeah. But the general aim is the same. It's to uh, make your gardening as sustainable and as eco-friendly and as light touch as it's possible mm. to get. And there is a massive interest out there. So, yes, it's a huge debating point in, in gardening circles and things are really starting to change actually as well. There was a time when the horticultural industry, for example, really didn't even think about it all that much. Really? Nowadays, they are bending over backwards. They're not there yet, uh, not quite by quite a long way, but there is huge awareness of it and they are bending over backwards to do something about it. And what do you think created that change? Oh, definitely gardeners. People, people oh, really? becoming more aware of the climate crisis and the fact that, you know, global warming, mm. uh, climate change, all of it. I mean, as gardeners, we're probably affected by climate change more than anybody yes. else. Because, of course, we're the ones who have to deal with the flooding and the warm springs and the droughts mm. in summer. And we have to deal with it day to day. You know, we're the ones who have to go out with a blooming watering can twice yes. a day. All of, you know, so we are very hyper aware of these things. And uh, because we're out in nature as well, you know, we see the pollution. We see the fact that yeah. there aren't any butterflies anymore. You know, yeah. all of those kinds of things. And so we are brought face to face with it every day we go out in our garden. It's no wonder we're more aware of it than most people. Yeah. And did you find that, you know, a lot of people's in, if you like, into sustainability will be something like plastic. And especially when we had Blue Planet 2 and, you know, and, and suddenly because plastic's everywhere and once you start to notice it and you can actually see it and it's very tangible. And again, I feel like with gardening, sometimes that can be the light bulb that people go, 
oh my God, I think I'm doing this really good thing. And I've got all these plastic pots and all these bags of compost and all these, and I don't know what to, to now do with it. Has that quite a good in for some people, do you think? Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that as with so many of these things, it's not really an either or, you know, yeah, you, don't, sure. you, you don't sort of, because uh, I've heard some people say, uh, for example, we're concentrating too much on plastic and yeah, we're forgetting yeah, yeah. about the whole yes. kind of climate change and mm. reducing carbon emissions thing. Actually, I don't think we have a choice in either yes. category. I think we have to reduce the amount of plastic yeah. we've got. It's horrific, the amount of pollution that there is in the world. I mean, we mm. don't get to see all that much of it, although I say that. But as a professional gardener, of course, I'm kind of rootling around in the soil yeah. in lots of different gardens. And I can tell you for a fact that the soil is as polluted as the sea is. Wow. I am digging up plastic fragments all the time. Wow. And I, I, I'm, I'm at some stage, I'm going to make a little pile of yes. the plastic that I dig out of a garden on a regular kind of week. Yeah, and, and photograph it and say, this is what I pulled out. The little kind of bits of sort of clear polythene and things like that. Yeah. The soil goes down an awful long way. Goodness knows how far it reaches. They wow. did some research not so long ago, which showed that earthworms are now starting to lose weight because they're eating so much plastic instead of actual soil particles no. that they're, you know, they're starving. In the same way that we see those pictures of the baby albatrosses and stuff with stomachs full of plastic, that's That's happening to, oh my God. So it's not just on the TV, it's not just halfway across the world in the Pacific, it's right here, right here, right now in our back gardens. And we really have to do something about it. We've got to do something about it. It's it's almost too late already, It's, it's such a tide. But you've got to start somewhere, you know. So I think, you know, you've got to do something. I'd feel far worse if I was sitting here thinking, that's it, too late, can't do anything. Yeah. That this so, is my way of doing something. For people who might not be very into soil, if anyone's watched, there's a documentary called Kiss the Ground, which um, is on Netflix. And it's amazing about soil and these, you know, that this enormous potential that it has to help with the climate crisis. And I did an interview with a wonderful lady called Anna Della Vega, who runs the Urban Worm a year or two ago, and she's amazing. But there might be some people sat there thinking, well, what does it matter if there's plastic in the soil? What does it matter if the earthworms are losing a little bit of weight? Like, um, because, you know, if it's in the soil, it's locked away, it's not getting into the oceans and things. Can you just expand on that for us? Ah, but it is, that's the (laughs) trouble. Because if it's in the soil, the whole world, the whole world's ecosystem is one big cycle. Mm. And so what you've got is you've got water rushing down into the soil. You've got little tiny bits of microplastics in the soil. Mm. You end up with um, all of that microplastic gets washed down through the sort of groundwater and through the aquifers into the ocean. So, yes, it does end up in the ocean, nonetheless, Mm. even if it's just in the soil. But worse, from my point of view, is that a healthy soil is a healthy garden. Mm -hmm. If you've got a healthy soil, then all of the ecosystem underneath the ground is working like a like it's like a little tiny world in in itself, Mm. actually. We know hardly anything about what happens underneath the ground, yeah. but it's so important for the growth of our um, our plants, for the amount of carbon that is locked up in there, mm. and for you know for the fact that it is uh, one of the greatest carbons. Well, it's the greatest carbon sink actually, I suppose, apart from maybe the oceans. Mm. But something like eighty six percent of the carbon that's locked up in your garden is in the soil. It's not in the plants wow. at all, because it's not just the particles of sort of decayed, you know, organic matter, humus. Um, it's actually in the billions of bacteria and Mm. earthworms and the little kind of funguses and the mycorrhizas and oh you name it but the fact is that it's this incredible world down there that has a huge biomass by itself and is always is just sucking in carbon now if we let our soils degrade and we let all that escape and we just pollute them and just make them lifeless what you end up with is 
far worse climate change. In fact, it frightens me, to be honest, how you know it's just not something we can even let happen because yeah. of the climate change that would induce. It would be catastrophic. I mean, I, I read somewhere, um, and you can correct me um, because I'll probably be wrong, but that in one teaspoon of soil, there's more microorganisms than, than there are people on the planet. Like, uh, and... Not so much that. There's, they reckon there's about a billion. Okay. Okay. So, uh, so, <laughs> I told yeah, you I'd be wrong. Not quite that enormous, <laughs> but I mean, you know, teaspoons are kind of little, yeah. so it's still quite a big number. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But most of them are actually bacteria, and you wouldn't need a microscope to see them. But there are little kind of um, nematodes and little wriggly things. I mean, yeah. they haven't identified most of them, to be honest, and they have no idea what relationship they have with plants or, you know, mm. the environment or anything. Don't know what they do half the time. And I think it's very easy to kind of blame you know, air quotes, big agriculture for, you know, we're, we're certainly I've been sort of hearing in my little geeky eco world about this idea that we've got, you know, anywhere between 30 and 60 sort of harvests left and that, you know, all the topsoil is disappearing and it's very easy to blame the agriculture and the way we farm and the use of pesticides and things. But then when we turn back to look at our own gardens, we might be doing those very same things, but just on a much smaller scale. Yeah, yeah. And it's also, I think, easy to think, oh, it doesn't matter if it's only in my garden. Yes. I've just got a tiny little garden. Yes. That doesn't matter if I do that. Now, I worked it out, actually, from various... It depends where you look in terms of your sources. But uh, I worked it out from various different sort of sources that in the UK alone, and this doesn't count anywhere else in the rest of the world, and the UK is quite a small country, in the UK alone, we have a million acres of garden wow which is huge and there's been a statistic batting around for quite a while actually that the, uh, the the gardens we have in this country are greater than all of our nature reserves put together no way now if you take that that's a heck of a big area and we can make you know the the ecosystem services that that gardens provide in terms of carbon sequestration and biodiversity and uh, you name it all of those services are really overlooked. People just think of gardening as a hobby. You know, just mm, yes. Actually, everything you do in your back garden contributes to this massive ecosystem that none of us really have even been looking into, never mind taking seriously. And so it really does matter what you do in your back garden really matters. So digging, for example, which is the sort of gardener's equivalent of plowing. Mm. If you deep dig, then what you're doing is you're turning your soil upside down and all of that carbon that's nicely locked away underneath the soil is turned up to the air and so carbon plus oxygen of course makes carbon dioxide mm. and so you're actually contributing to climate change if you if you deep dig in addition to that of course you are also destroying that lovely ecosystem that i was talking about earlier that very busy sort of system of, of little creatures so you're you're smashing a spade into the middle of it so that's not wow. going to do it any good far better really just to leave your soil untouched as much as you possibly can and simply cover it with a mulch of organic matter so that that will be pulled down by the worms and by everything, leaving everything intact underneath. And that way you get to actually add back some carbon yeah. to be absorbed back into the soil. When you say deep dig, is that me going to the depth of my fork or spade or is that you like really Pretty much, digging? yeah. Okay. I mean, obviously the deeper you go, the more carbon you pull yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but even, you know, to be honest, you should avoid digging at all if you possibly wow. can. But obviously everybody has to dig a little bit, you know, um, but the less that you can do, the better. Um, That's what we think of as gardening, isn't it? Getting in there with your wellies and your fork and turning the ground over and pulling yeah. the weeds out. And actually, um, idea. there's this whole, I did a, I had a chat with Stephanie Rafferty. I said, oh yes, I know Steph, yeah. Steph, yeah. We had an online festival in May and she did a session on no dig gardening. Um, and honestly, it was probably the most popular session of the whole festival. I'm but, not surprised. And I, I was just like, 
I just thought no dig gardening was just this sort of niche slightly kind of weird way of gardening and and no one will have heard of it or be vaguely interested in it it's huge isn't it's it massive yeah Charles Dowding who's um Steph's uh partner I believe yeah. he put up a video on composting he's no dig pioneer he put up a video on composting the other week and it got 100,000 views within the first five minutes no so that's it's unbelievable the amount of following it has and it's not just about the whole kind of carbon and eco side of things which is obviously important but more to the point it's amazing the difference it makes to your produce you know really actually grow in it because when you've got a soil that's completely healthy and that's got lots and lots and lots of organic matter being fed into it which of course boosts the ecosystem under the soil Mm. enormously when you've got that happening then your plant's roots can interact with what's under the soil because there's lots of it and maybe mm. there's lots of nutrients and they grow like topsy. It's amazing the difference it makes. So for anyone who hasn't heard of that um, that phrase, no dig gardening, it kind of is what it says on the tin, isn't it? But can you just explain it a little bit more to yes, us? Sure. Well, the idea is that you avoid digging wherever you possibly can. And instead of digging things over, you simply add stuff on the top. Uh, that's a kind of simplistic way of putting it. But for example, so if you've got like a new plot that you want to turn into, like you've got a bit of your lawn that you mm. want to turn into a veg bed, don't worry about digging it over or removing the turf or anything like that. You just scalp the top growth off the top just to sort of, you know, get it back down flat. And then simply uh, you put probably a layer of cardboard on the top just to stop weeds coming up through. And then a big old heap of uh either homemade compost if you've got enough or municipal green waste or Mm -hmm. well-rotted stable manure that kind of thing perhaps mixed with a bit of topsoil if you've got it but Mm -hmm. if not doesn't matter too much just make a really big thick mulch plant into the top of it and what you find is that the plants just kind of shove their roots down through the cardboard which is kind of rotting down in the bottom and uh, and they just carry on from there and then you just top up that mulch each year uh, about two to five inches. Oh, mm. That's old money, isn't it? Five, <laughs> two, uh, ten, ten centimeters, something yeah. like that. <laughs> but anyway, kind of you know this much, and you give it a good old mulch each year, and you keep that mulch topped up so that the top, the the soil is covered all the time. It also means that you bury annual weed seeds, so you right. get many many fewer weeds. And then perennial weeds, you can also deal with using this system with the cardboard method. So if you've got like, uh, um, for example, I'm my garden is riddled with bindweed. Uh, so I use this technique quite a lot. You just cover the soil in cardboard, pull out the top growth of the uh, bindweed. Don't try and dig it out. There's no yeah. point because it's rooting too deep. Cover that with the uh, cardboard, put the mulch on the top, plant into the top of that. And the bindweed really, really struggles to get through that cardboard. So all the time it's being weakened. Keep that up year after year after year. And eventually it'll go. That's Take the plan. The <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've said that, you know, digging is is quite a bad thing to do when we actually stop and think about it what are some of the other worst things we can do when it comes to gardening that we're probably just not even thinking about and we're just doing because that's how we garden mowing the lawn wow (laughs) I've got a real thing about lawns I quite like them I'm a bit conflicted to be honest because I quite like lawn uh you know in the summer it's lovely to have a lawn to sort of lie out and pick Mm. on and all that kind of stuff so I do have a lawn but uh, I have completely changed the way that I look after it. First of all, I've given, I used to mow it with a petrol mower. I don't do that anymore. Tell me the, tell mower. everyone the stat in your book, because that, I mean, God, I love a stat, but that blew my mind about petrol mowers. I'm leafing yeah. through trying to find it now, but I'm hoping you can remember Yeah, it. well, one hour of petrol mowing. So that's kind of like a medium sized lawn, I suppose. One hour of uh, running a petrol mower, even quite a new model, will be the equivalent of driving 93 miles in a car. 
that's mental. I told my husband that, like it was one of those, you know, like literally sat up in bed and I went, this is mad. And my husband was like, you know, in a sort of logical man way, well, how can that be? Because you're not going that many miles and stuff. But I guess they're just so much more polluting, are they, than a modern engine? It's about emissions. And they did another test actually much more recently than that one. Uh, It was only last year, I believe, where they tested other petrol uh, equipment in the garden. So they they tested a leaf mower, a strimmer, and uh, sorry, leaf blower, a strimmer, and uh, I can't remember the other, oh, a hedge trimmer. Mm. And they they tested them at a vehicle testing agency where they test emissions for MOT. And they put them through it. And the leaf blower was actually the worst. And that came out as it went off the scale. They couldn't measure it accurately because it was so off the scale for emissions. It was three times the emissions allowed for a Ford Fiesta car. Wow. And so that's a petrol leaf blower. That's a petrol leaf blower. My God. And And that was the worst one. I think as well, like regardless of whether these things are are petrol or electric, obviously electric is going to be better in terms of emissions. But we've kind of um, mechanized a lot of gardening, haven't we? So we've we're sort of putting the energy drain on the grid and then we're all sat there getting fatter because we're not out raking our lawns or doing, you know, there's a little bit of me that's like, oh, we've kind of in our quest to make this easier. We've kind of made it more energy intensive and you know I can understand why people do it but so mowing the lawn what else is bad about mowing the lawn well I I think you know there's a limit to all of this because I've I've tried to use use a scythe and and you I mean yes Aidan Turner can do it (laughs) he can go and do it any time around my house (laughs) in fact yeah if he'd come round and do it I'd be quite happy to use a scythe that would be fine yeah but I am not up to it. I'm no. really not. I never did master it. I'd love to be able to, but I just can't. So practically, mm. I'm not going to go around with a pair no. of shears. So practically, my only option really is to mow if I want a lawn. Yeah. However, I do mow much, much less than most people. I was kind of lazy about mowing the lawn anyway. But um, if you're the kind of person who mows your lawn every week, it's not really necessary, actually. And they did a bit of research uh, over the last few years, actually. They've got a, um, a research project going with Plant Life in which they've discovered that if you mow every four weeks, then what you end up with is lots and lots of flowers in your lawn. So Mm. you get things like daisies and clovers Mm. and uh, dandelions and all of those kinds of things. They tend to be the low growing ones, but you get much, you get many more numbers of flowers. Mm. And so therefore much more nectar for the bees Mm. and things like that. Um, So that's a really good thing to do. But if you uh, can leave a section of your garden completely unmown, and you only cut it down once a year, Mm. what you end up with then is wildflower diversity. So what you end up with is lots more varieties of flowers coming up in your lawn, perhaps less by way of nectar, but, you know, much more diversity from a plant point of view. Mm. So if you can do both, that's absolutely the best way to go. So um, these days I mow my lawn in three different ways, which might sound terribly complicated, but actually (laughs) it kind of works, you know, once you get into the habit, it's fine. So the bits that I use most, so the little patch outside of my, uh, it's actually outside a building I've got in the garden, little patch out there, plus the paths that I walk through the rest of it with, Mm. um, I mow that about once every two weeks. Okay. Then I have patches which are a bit closer to the house, which I mow every four weeks. Mm. And then there's one patch right at the back, which I just leave to go and, uh, and I mow it once a year. Now, I tell you what, last year, I went up to have a look at that patch at the back and there was a pyramidal orchid in it. Oh, wow. Um, I'm hoping that this year, I left it, obviously, yeah. and uh, to self-seed and stuff, and I'm really, really hoping that that will build up slowly into a colony of, of orchids. Wow. And then my work is done, to be honest. That absolutely justified it for me. Doesn't really that show did. you that when you give nature a chance, do you know, it's... Um, so we've, like I said, we've only got a small garden, and I'm 
we've got a few we've got a couple of pear trees that makes it sound like it's an enormous garden it's not um and and you know my husband and I have this ongoing debate about mowing the lawn and and he quite likes I think going out and mowing the lawn and it looking all nice and tidy whereas you know we've last year we made a concerted effort or you know I had to tend to stop mowing the lawn um, and like you say, the clover, and so, I mean, we had loads of clover. Um, and then we've got a little patch that we have left completely wild. But this idea that we have this very traditional sense of what a lawn should be and what, I mean, my mother-in-law spends a fortune with like the green thumb man to get oh, this, yeah. you know, I know I can see you putting your head in your hands, you know, this oh. immaculate kind of green lawn, but we're just creating these massive monocultures, aren't we? It's a, it's a biodiversity desert, mm. a lawn that's kept like that because yeah. you're killing absolutely everything mm. whether the wild plants that are li living underneath or whether you've got um you know bees and insects that are visiting yeah. it uh you're probably destroying a lot of the um soil quality because uh when you feed with high nitrogen fertilizers like the green thumb man uses then what you're doing is you're feeding the plants yes but you're not adding anything at all to the quality of the soil mm. so you're not strengthening roots you're not increasing the amount of um organic matter within mm. the soil so when you cut your lawn and you remove that greenery off the top you're withdrawing resources from the soil, but you're not replacing them. Mm. So that actually means that you're ending up depleting your soil. And that's how things like topsoil depletion happen, yeah. because you're constantly taking out and you're not putting back in. It's so we've got to maintain a lawn. <laughs> digging, digging is bad. Uh, mowing is well, not these things aren't, you know, like you said, it's the mowing kind of ish. Bad. So mowing, mowing less is what we need to be yeah. doing. Less in the way of artificial fertilizers and things by the sounds of it as well. Yeah. Most definitely. Well, because the thing is that even manufacturing artificial fertilizers, uh, it's done by a process called the Haber-Bosch process, which is uh, an incredibly energy intense uh, process. It involves some sort of chemical reaction with catalysts and things. Magic. Uh, but anyway, it's very complicated. And it's basically a way of drawing nitrogen down from the air and making it into an, an artificial compound. Mm. Massively energy intensive, so therefore very high carbon emissions. Mm. And it also has this side effect, as, the, as I was just talking mm. about, of withdrawing all of the goodness out of the soil. Yeah. So for all sorts of reasons, it's not a very good thing. So organic fertilizers, things which are made from plants like seaweed, liquid seaweed is one of my oh, okay. favorites. Yeah. Um, and uh, there are, you can make your own fertilizer out of things like um, comfrey and nettles. Comfrey is very high in potassium, which encourages fruiting mm -hmm. and nettles are very high in nitrogen, but naturally so. So when you treat your lawn, for example, if you want to with a uh, nettle, a liquid nettle feed, then what you're doing is you're adding effectively little tiny weeny fragments dissolved in water mm. of plant material. So you're actually increasing the amount of, of uh, organic matter within the soil, as well as giving your plants an injection of nitrogen. So that's the natural way to do it. That's how nature would do it, actually. How, how do we make a nettle feed then? You put on a pair of really <laughs> thick gloves. <laughs> <laughs> and usually the time you could start is about April, May time, just mm. when, you know, that really fresh first flush of nettles is coming through. There's the sort of really bright green ones right, that look really yeah. nice. That before it's flowered, once it's flowered, it starts to become woody and it's not quite okay, so nitrogen yeah. rich. You can still make feed out of it, but it just won't be so good. So when you've got that first flush of nettles, cut them down and stuff them into a bucket and get as many crammed in as you can. Basically, the more you can cram in there, the richer your feed will be. Okay, yeah. Put a brick on the top to keep it all in place and then pour water over that to, uh, you know, cover the nettles. Mm. Then put a lid on that because it gets very smelly once it's <laughs> 
and put it somewhere away from the house like somewhere okay. you, you won't be too bothered by it yeah. um but anyway leave it there for about six weeks wow and what you'll end up with then is a is a sort of brownish greenish kind of liquid mm, um decant yeah, that yeah. off put the spent nettles on your compost heap and then you need to dilute it kind of about one to four one to five something like that yeah um it should be the the um color of weak tea before okay. you water it on your yeah. plant and, and so and you can use that you could put that in a watering can and water your whole lawn if you wanted to Absolutely, you could water your whole lawn you can water anything with that actually pretty much so do we need to be treating our lawns or not just let them get on with it well personally i just let mine get on with it yeah because i'm i'm not growing it so much for the grass anyway which might mm. sound a bit ridiculous because it's a lawn but i like to have flowers in my lawn mm. so i like you know clover and things like that yeah clover incidentally is a really lovely thing to establish in your lawn because they've got little legumes so they've got little nodules on their roots yeah. which actually do that process of drawing nitrogen down out of the atmosphere so if you've got clover in your lawn they're actually feeding the ground themselves i'm, I'm winning at clover there we go then so you're already feeding your lawn there's no <laughs> well need done me anything else Yay. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant what are some of the things we've talked about some of the things we shouldn't do um, and in that, we've kind of talked about some of the things we should do, like not mowing as often and, and not digging and all those sorts of things. Any things that we can sort of actively go out and do that will be um, good? Oh, well, I mean, there's all sorts of sort of little actions. And uh, I mean, we've talked about quite a lot of them already. But mm. the other thing that I've become quite sort of preoccupied just lately by is how you deal with garden waste. Mm. Because when you are gardening, um, you are constantly sort of, uh, you know, pulling out weeds or um, clipping things, you know, trimming the hedges, cutting the lawn, uh, doing all those sorts of things. So you're constantly generating garden waste. And as we all know, you know, most of the time you just bung it in the back of the car and take it down the tip or you get the council to collect mm -hmm. it or whatever. That's fine as far as it goes. Uh, if you take it down to the tip or get the council to collect it, it ends up in a recycling process. So then it gets turned into, you know, organic matter, which is then returned to the soil. So that's all good. But you're incurring carbon emissions all the way along that chain. Mm. So your car going down to the tip yeah, is yeah. Uh, incurring carbon emissions. Then uh, the lorry that takes the waste from the tip to the recycling centre, that is, and so on and so forth. So you can bypass all of that altogether and just dispose of as much waste as possible on the plot. In other words, don't let it go out the garden. Mm. And once you've started doing this, you actually start to get a really weird approach to waste because you stop seeing it as rubbish. And you start thinking of it as, as a resource mm. you start thinking oh you know i could do with a few more weeds coming up because yeah. then i can put them on the compost <laughs> and I can do with a bit more compost so you know you start to think like this and then you think that's really weird but nonetheless you know i think that it's actually um it's quite a useful uh attitude mm. because it means that you you really want to keep stuff on your plot then which of course is good for the environment, but also means that, you know, you benefit then because for example, all of the top growth of my weeds, I end up putting into onto the compost bin and that kind of gets uh, turned into mulch, but doesn't go much more than a few yards really, to be honest. Okay. Um, and then even like the roots, for example, of perennial weeds, which you wouldn't normally want to put on your compost heap. Uh, if you either dry them on the side, depends how much room you've got for this really, but you can either dry them on the side or you can simply dunk them in a bucket and leave them there for six weeks, much like the nettle. Mm. Um, you can use the liquid as a fertilizer just the same, but then the weeds, the, the, the actual perennial roots themselves are dead by the end of that oh, process. Okay. So you yeah. can bung them on the compost heap, that means. Yeah. So that's a rather nice kind of revenge that you get on the <laughs> weeds as well, which is always good. We've already talked about the fedges and things like that for yeah. getting rid of larger waste. You can also, of course, chip it in an um, electric powered mm -hmm. shredder. 
yeah. that's another really good way of adding larger stuff to your compost yeah and uh, you know i mean it's it's just it's endless the amount of uses that you can find yeah. for things like kitchen waste that you might not want to put on to the uh compost heap things like bread and you know mm. food waste and that kind of thing get yourself a wormery mm. and that means that you can process a fair amount of that kind of cooked food and and all of that and you end up at the end of that with worm wee which is fantastic liquid fertilizer yeah and just a tiny amount of organic matter as well which then of course you can put back on the garden yeah too. I, I want to do a whole episode on composting, I think, because there's oh, going to be yeah. so much to cover on that. One thing we haven't touched on is um, peat in compost. Uh-huh, yes. That's yeah. still a it's bit... Still tell a people why that's why bad to start off with. I don't understand why it's still a thing. No. Basically, um, at the moment, um, they've, do, they've done quite a lot towards reducing the amount of peat in bagged potting compost. So it used to be that most bagged co- potting compost you bought was pretty much 100% peat. The reason why you don't want peat in your potting compost is because in order to harvest the peat, first of all, you're destroying a unique ecosystem. Mm. Peat bogs are the most extraordinary places. They've basically uh, rotted things down anaerobically into very dense layers. It's actually the first stage of how coal is formed. Oh, really? And so after 10,000 years, all of that organic matter turns into this extraordinary black kind of preservative anaerobic Mm. kind of thing uh mass which um preserves things very well actually i mean people who've died you know two thousand years ago have been dug out of people almost intact with you know yeah still eyes and stuff let's not go there but nonetheless um so it's an amazing substance but unfortunately they discovered in about the 1940s 1950s that if you dug it up and dried it out then what you end up with is a fantastic growing medium now, I'm not going to knock peat as a growing medium because it is very good. It's water retentive, it's light, it's uh, nutrient um, neutral, so you don't have to worry about okay, it being yeah. alkaline or acid or anything like that. It's very, very good for plants. But the process of digging it up, mm. effectively what you're doing is pumping all of the carbon that is involved with, you know, that, that's been sequestered by that yeah, uh, yeah. decomposition. You're exposing it all to the air, much the same as I was talking about earlier with the soil. Yeah. And that's turning into carbon dioxide. The uh, peat harvesting, taking that, the peat out of bogs in uh, the in England alone, not even Scotland, Wales, well, they don't harvest peat in Wales, but Scotland and Ireland. If you just take the harvesting that happens in England alone, it emits the equivalent of three coal-fired power stations every year. It's 11 million tonnes of carbon. It's just mind-blowing. And most of that is for horticulture. So, in fact, in England, it's all for horticulture. So it's appalling the the kind of damage that you do to the environment it's actually the thing is that the government have cottoned onto this and and you know i'm no kind of apologist for the government but the fact is that this one they've got right partly because they've got this kind of target at the moment that they want Mm. to be you know carbon zero by 2050 i believe it is now peter's a low-hanging fruit it's very easy Mm. to stop uh renewing peat licenses and stop people harvesting peat Um, and so uh that's what they've done and so the horticultural industry is very slowly and painfully being dragged towards a peat-free future. It is crazy that they are even there at the moment. They've already missed one deadline. They had a deadline in 2020 last year that there should be no peat in amateur potting composts anymore. Mm. This target was set in 2011, I believe it was. And they've still got, I think it's just under 50% now average of peat in potting compost. If you pick up a bag of potting compost and it doesn't have on the front written in big letters peat free, it will have pot it will have peat in it. 
you can guarantee it. Wow. They don't put it on the label. They're going to start putting it on the label this coming year. Like cigarette but, labels. Yeah, well, absolutely. So they should have. I mean, it's appalling. Wow. Anyway, so it, unless it says peat free, it's got peat in it. So um, and the you know, it's taken them a long time to get people to accept it. And still, um, most people, most gardeners garden, prefer to buy compost yeah. with peat in it, which is a kind of a hangover, I think, because there was a time when the first peat free mixes came on the market. They were really bad. They were really <laughs> rubbishy. And there are still quite a lot of rubbishy mixes out there. But these days, there are also a large number of really wonderful, wonderful mixes, which are at least as good. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've always used peat free, so I can't really judge how they yeah. compare. But people tell me that they're at least as good, if not better than, than peat based now. So there's really no excuse these days. Mm. We had an interview on, on cut flowers um, last yeah. year and the, the florist was doing all these wonderful, amazing things with British blooms and stuff. But she said she was one thing that the thing she was sort of really struggling to do without was was peat compost and she said because she finds that the the compost the non-peat compost is so variable and I was sort of thinking about it and I was like well that kind of makes it sound like they've kind of gone and dug up somebody's compost heap but it presumably it's a bit more of a scientific process than that. To be honest it used to be that they would just go down to the council pick up the the composted waste and shove it in you know and that's that is very variable it's not surprising that that was didn't give consistent results. But nowadays, it's much more scientific than uh, that. Okay. There's a, a wonderful brand called um, uh, Melcourt Silvergrove. I've never had a bag bag off them, actually, to be quite honest. They are really, really good. Yeah. And they are, they do it properly. They do nothing but peat-free compost. Wow. So they they do um, they have the mix right. They have the balance right. They're very consistent. They do proper testing. They're quite a reasonable scale now. Not mm. as big as the big boys, but still pretty good. So, yeah, they, they get very, very good results now. So... That kind of doesn't apply anymore. And to be yeah. honest, if she's struggling to manage without with, without peat in her compost, she's using the wrong compost. That's uh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can't remember if it was last year. It might have been in typical lockdown fashion, kind of, we're going to grow some vegetables or whatever. We must have had lots of people doing that last year. You know, and you're limited to where you can go. So you're going to do your supermarket shop and you go to Lidl's and they've got the pallets of compost packed up and you just whack mm. a little one in the, in the thing. That will probably have peat in it, won't it? It will definitely have peat in it, yeah, without a doubt. If you go into B&Q, it's a bit different because okay. B&Q are actually one of the few people that have made a real effort in this area. They've gone a very interesting way, though, because they've just brought in this new range of compost called Good Home. Mm. And it's replaced their Verve compost. But if you go and have a look at the label on Good Home compost, you'll find that they actually are peat free, but they don't say so. Oh, weird. Because okay. what they've cottoned onto is that so many gardeners kind of think, you know, they have this kind of autopilot thing where they go, right, okay, got to look for a peat-based compost because peat is good. Yeah. And uh, and so I think B&Q have done some sort of, you know, audience research where mm. they they found that if it has peat-free on it, people won't buy it. So wow. they've just taken peat-free off. Yeah. Now, yeah, yeah. I, I have no idea kind of whether that's how successful that will be. I'd yeah. say it's only quite a recent thing, but it's a really interesting development, I think. Yeah. I mean, once we're at the default where more composts ha- are peat-free than peat-based, then, then you know, that, that will become the norm. But at mm. the moment, you've, you've got to do your homework. I think picking up compost outside of Lidl, yeah. you know, yes, it's cheap. And I get that, you know, not everybody, could, because peat-free tends to be a little bit more expensive. But mm. Prices are coming down quite considerably now. I mean, um, Melcourt is pretty nearly, it's only about a pound more than right. peat-based. Yeah. So the prices are coming down, but nonetheless, they are a bit more expensive. So I understand that some people may not be able to afford the uh, high prices of peat-free. Uh, yeah. But if that's the case, to be honest, 
don't buy don't get the peat based outside of Lidl make your own right it's free yeah 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 all that is is materials that you have in your own garden so your topsoil that you dug out your garden homemade uh, garden compost free a little bit of sand that I suppose that might cost you a little bit and some uh, some seaweed meal which is just a box oh, okay. of okay yeah mix it all up and bingo you've got your own compost it's got your own garden soil in it so yeah. your, your plants will establish better and it's it's right there you know you yeah. don't even have to transport it anywhere it's 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 good stuff I think probably a, a final thing because I'm really aware of time and um, yeah. pesticides there is nothing more depressing is there than you know everybody like I said in lockdown um last summer enthusiastically growing veg and you know I've I've tried the same and you're just getting all excited and you're seeing them come out and then the next day you come out and the bloody slugs have had them yes. like what can we do that's nice for pesticides <laughs> <laughs> or not well, not really nasty yeah um Again, it, it depends how far you're willing to go. Um, I've developed various different sort of techniques and methods and ways of working through the years that I've been gardening, which mean that the slug damage that I get is less, just simply because, for example, if I'm raising seedlings, uh, I will generally speaking, raise them in pots and modules and that kind of thing. There's very little actually that I um, direct sow into the ground, mainly because if you direct them into the ground, they come up with these little tender little seedlings. There's nothing a slug likes more yeah, yeah. a little kind of pair of seedling leaves. And of course, once the slug's eaten those seedling leaves, that's it, the plant is dead. Mm. Whereas um, if you plant them out as young plants, they might still, still get nibbled a bit by slugs, but the damage is just to a leaf or two and they've got lots more leaves, so they're quite happy and they won't get so... So how do you stop damaged. the slugs attacking the pots as the seedlings are Well, they're up on shelves for a okay. start, so they're more difficult for the slugs to yeah. find. They do still find them, um, but all I do is I check them every, probably every kind of day or two. And certainly if it's damp or anything like mm. that, um, then you just lift up your pots, just keep sort of, you know, moving them around, checking them, checking underneath, all that kind of thing, just to look out for any slugs that are around what do you do with them because presumably I, I it's not pc and i and i get rid of them did you say you throw them over the wall no, no i was gonna say that's probably very un pc with your neighbors <laughs> they come back well exactly and then no they definitely come back there's no yeah. doubt about it no i can't quite bring myself to squish them i did use yeah. them actually but i've got a bit more sensitive to these things these days but uh, i i dispatch them to the compost heap and because they actually slugs prefer dead material to live material. Oh, okay so they'll quite happily eat their way through your compost heap. Um, the only thing is then I fret because I sort of think, oh, my compost is going to be full of slug eggs now. And I, I'm, I haven't quite cracked that one. Right, yeah. All I know is it gets them away from my plants. Yes. That's kind of it, really. I mean, I, I try not to kill things where I don't yeah. have to. And I am quite tolerant of a little bit of damage here and there. Mm. To me, it's, it proves it's real. You know, it proves yeah. it's organic. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Um, so, uh, but there is a limit to that, obviously. I grow all of my brassicas and anything that's vulnerable to things like cabbage white, white butterfly underneath mesh. This okay. is where I break my rules about no plastic in the garden because yeah. I haven't found a good substitute for it. I'm going to try calico one year, actually, and okay. see if that works as yeah. well. But for now, I've got EnviroMesh. You, you, you do have to go for the posh branded stuff because anything else shreds. And if it shreds, right. it's, past, it's putting plastic into the yeah, environment. Yeah, yeah. But I've been using my EnviroMesh mesh uh, for 10 years now. And so it's, it's reusable. You can yeah, use the same one so. year on year. Oh, okay. years years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just build a cage around everything right from the moment I plant it out and make sure that it's all sealed up and everything. And then yeah. the butterflies can't get in. And uh -huh. nor can the aphids, nor can the pigeons. You, you avoid a lot of problems that way. <laughs> <laughs> for, back to slugs, just because... I have, you know, bitter experience of them. Um, like we've tried beer traps, we've tried yeah. copper tape, we've tried 
eggshells? Like, are these just old wives' tales? Do they actually work? Beer traps definitely work. Um, I use them myself. And uh, if you sink a, a family-sized yogurt pot into the ground to um, leave a little bit of a rim above the ground, because otherwise beetles tend to fall into oh, it. Yeah. But um, so if you do that and then just put an inch or two of uh, cheap beer in the bottom, then the slugs love beer and they crawl in and drown. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit messy. You have to empty it into the compost bin. It again. stinks, um, doesn't it? It really smells. So <laughs> change it every day if you can, because they, 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 you attract a lot of slugs. Don't put it right in the middle of your lettuces because they'll eat the lettuces on the way on to the way. Beer. Yeah. Um, but if you put it away to one side a little bit, it'll lure your slugs away from your mm. tender plants. And, and that really works quite well. Barriers, things like um, eggshells and coffee grounds and uh, those granules that you buy from the garden centre, the garlic granules. Right. None of them work. Oh, I've, really? Yeah, I've tried them all and not one of them works. And part of the reason why they don't work, I think, is because uh, when it rains, um, the first thing that happens when it rains is that it washes all of those things into the ground. Mm. So they disappear. Yeah. And of course, when it's raining is when you need the most yes. protection against slugs. So they vanish just when they're most needed. Right. The only barrier I've found that really works is bran, as oh, okay. in bran that you buy from the health shop. Yeah. Because if you make a really thick kind of pile of it around your plants, then um, when it rains, it actually swells up and makes oh, an effective yeah, yeah, barrier. Yeah. Slugs don't like kind of crawling over it. Mm. Um, and also one one slightly less pleasant after side, uh, side effect of that is that um, slugs actually quite like eating bran, though. So they'll eat the bran and then the bran carries on expanding inside the slug and they go bang it's not not nice i shouldn't be no, laughing perhaps at not that. one if you if you object to killing slugs very yeah. much then perhaps not but <laughs> but it's a very effective barrier it's the only barrier i've found that works oh that's really i've never heard of that one before that's absolutely fascinating the book, honestly, Sally, I, I know I said, you know, I've said several times, I'm not a gardener, I'm not a gardener, but it's absolutely fascinating. The stats you put yes. in there, the things it makes you think about, you know, the simple act of mowing the lawn. I think you've got a whole piece in there on, you know, greenhouses and mm. all that kind of thing as well. It's, it's exactly as you said at the beginning, it's about kind of making us think. There's a lot of gardening that we, that we pick up or that we learn from our parents and we just do it because we're like that's how you garden and actually when we stop and think about what we're trying to achieve with our garden and what we you know I, I'm assuming most of us garden because we want a garden that looks nice but that then has all that biodiversity and all that wonderful sort of other things that come with it so um, well, I mean as part of the book I, I've actually um, there's one uh, chapter in the book where I talk about how to design a garden mm. that's wild without the wildness yeah. So you've got a garden that's that's quite um, well. The example I always use is Great Dixter in East Sussex. I don't know if you've ever been there. No. But it is the most spectacular garden. If you ever get the chance, do go. It's in the middle of a Lutyens designed house. It's a publicly open garden. It's it's fated for its use of colour and it's just you know wonderful, wonderful garden. And it's it's just gorgeous. But it's very much a a pretty formal garden. It's got lots of sort of walls and paths mm. and you know all of that sort of stuff. But um, Fergus Garrett, who looks after it, uh, is very much into increasing biodiversity and, uh, and gardening in a very sustainable way. He's done sort of all sorts of little things like drilling holes in the, in the um, mortar of his walls so that solitary bees can yeah. get in and all of those kinds of things. Hundreds and hundreds of different things like that. He mulches with his uh, plant prunings and so on and so forth. He recently had an audit done, a biodiversity audit done of his garden. Mm. Um, and it's the most formal, most beautiful, most manicured garden you can imagine. And he had an audit done of it and it scored, uh, I can't remember what the proportion was, but considerably higher in biodiversity than the countryside next door. Wow. So wow. it just goes to show. I always think of gardens as being concentrated nature. Yeah. So if you manage it well, 
you can actually create a, a range of biodiversity and a range of carbon sequestration and all the other mm. um, services that a garden provides. You can provide much more than even that amount, than that area of nature yeah. could ever manage. Um, there's, there's also another statistic I use in the book is that a square foot of garden is able to contain more plant species than a square foot of Amazon rainforest. Wow. So when you think of that, and when you scale that up to garden size, it's extraordinary what we're able to create in a garden. It is yeah. in the way of an artificial environment, but then so is a hedgerow, so is a meadow, you yes, know, those, yeah. sorts of, those sorts of things that you can cite, which are good for wild, for mm. wildlife and for biodiversity mm. and for nature in general. And that's very much the case with gardens. I think if they're well managed, they can make a really, really positive contribution to uh, climate, the yeah. biodiversity and, and nature. Oh, I absolutely love that, Sally. Thank you so much. That feels like such a lovely place to stop. Although I honestly could talk to you probably all day just to pick your brains on like how crap my gardening is. Um, where can we come and find you? If we want um, to look on I, social media. Well, I'm on, uh, I'm on Instagram as sally.next and I'm on Twitter as well, um, at sallynext, I think. Uh, I have a website, sallynext.com. And uh, basically, I mean, the, the book's around, so uh, yeah. that's, that's going to be published uh, beginning of March, I believe. Oh, wow. So it's not even out yet. I'm very honoured. So Next is N-E-X, isn't it? Sally Next. Yes. Um, and the book is How to Garden the Low Carbon Way, um, out beginning of March and um, available in all the usual book buying places, I would imagine. Absolutely, yes. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. you wonderful sack of loveliness with me Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is, I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time. <laughs>